You're listening to World Building for Masochists. And we're wondering why we do this to ourselves. Because our talking cat told us to. I'm Sarah Beth Durst. I'm Rowena Miller. I'm Marshall Ryan Moresca. I'm Cass Morris. And this is episode 56, Word Building. listeners and a very special welcome to our special guest this week Sarah Beth Durst. It is so exciting to have you with us. I'm waving wildly. Yay! Yay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so happy to be here. Thanks so much for inviting me. And I have to say this one is extra exciting for me because not only am I a fan of your work but my daughter is also a fan of your work for uh, middle grade readers. So she just finished Spark and she's in the middle of I forget which one she grabbed next from the library, but she was super excited. So, oh, so happy to hear that. That's awesome. Yes. Yay. Please tell her I said hi. I will. <laughs> that is fantastic. Yes, I'm super excited because I know whenever I pick up a Sarah Beth Durst novel, I am in for some just awesome and truly unique world building. So I'm so happy we're able to have you on. So please uh, introduce yourself and tell us about your work and shout about your books. All right. Well, I am Sarah Beth Durst. I write fantasy for adults, teens, and kids. Uh, my newest book is called The Bone Maker. just came out from Harper Voyager, and it's about what happens 25 years after the big bad is defeated. The battle has been won, and these heroes think that they are done being heroes, and they are incorrect. It's uh, about second chances and a lot of bone magic. Um, I'm also the author of Race of Sands, which is an epic fantasy standalone about monster racing, and the Queen's Arenthia series, which is about bloodthirsty nature spirits. Um, my newest kid's book is called Even and Odd. It's got about two sisters that share magic, and there's a unicorn named Jeremy. I write a lot about talking cats and monsters that either eat people or don't eat people, depending on which age I'm writing for. <laughs> And talking cats for all ages, correct? Absolutely. I, yes. I really firmly believe that there's no novel that cannot be improved by the addition of a talking cat. There's your tip, listeners. Found that <laughs> <one away. laughs> for proof, I'm going to point to Lion King. I mean, when they rewrote Hamlet, they added talking cats, and somehow it got much better. <laughs> we, we were on a panel together back in the before times, and I believe you gave that very advice on that panel. I, I feel very firmly about that. I stand by that as one of my perennial advice giving things, <laughs> as it, well as be nice tip. to yourself and write a lot. <laughs> so. Also good tips. Giving away all the good stuff here at the top of the episode. Got to. <laughs> we are. <laughs> well, I feel like it's going to be an episode full of good stuff. Um, not only because Sarah Beth is here, but because our topic this time um, in talking about what we wanted to get into today we settled upon the fact that your world building is influenced by your pro style and your pro style is influenced by your world building so how do you build your world with your words and how does that all play out so i guess question to top us off and dive in when we talk about the writing part of what we do the term voice comes up a lot 
And it's this like enigmatic, weird, like how do you even define that? So like, how do you even define that? Especially when it comes to how it relates to the worlds that you're building. I think of it as the music of the story. What is the rhythm of the words? What's the melody? Where are the harmonies? And it comes right down to you know, what kind of consonants you're using, whether they're the harsh ones or the softer ones, um, the length of your sentences, the length of your paragraphs, how the dialogue uh, flows. All of that go, goes into voice for me. So I think it's, for me, it's a lot easier to think of it as finding the music of the story, what song you're singing. I love that. How about you guys? I mean, that is such a great metaphor just because I was thinking about how radically different the voice has was for me for both the book that I have coming up and for Velocity and for all the Meridane books and all the sub-series within the Meridane books. And it is this sort of like conducting the orchestra with each of the different Meridane series of like creating the different, I, I want to say, using that metaphor, I want to say the different light motifs in terms of how how the different areas of that world come about. And then Velocity Revolution was a completely different song altogether. Yeah, I think it's so true. I mean, I find I can't write the rest of the book until I have that music, that, that first sentence that tells me what, what the lyric sounds like, what the, what the melody sounds like. What I often find myself thinking about is a word that we should probably add to our, our podcast drinking game, the rhetoric of the piece. This is one of my favorite things to talk about. It's it's one of my favorite words, one of my favorite concepts. <laughs> Thinking about those patterns, and I just sort of, I come at it from a slightly different angle because I I enjoy music, but I know absolutely nothing about it. And so I'm, I don't think in that kind of metaphor, but I am always conscious of where I'm using repetitive patterns, where I am leaving information out, where I am using lots of description or being very sparse, sparse with it. And to me, I am thinking about the, the Greek and Latin terms that are locked into my brain uh, forever and ever, thanks to Latin classes and Shakespeare classes. That's where voice, I think, a lot comes into it for me, is those patterns. I like that. I like thinking about that as patterns. I mean, the, the story itself, each chapter has a certain pattern to it in terms of how it feels with the rise and the fall and that contribute to the whole thing. I like thinking of the, looking at the patterns. That's cool. <laughs> yeah, I love all of these. And I think it's, it's sometimes hard to nail down because it's even these really small pieces of the writing. Like I think of it sometimes as like the mouthfeel of words, like how do they actually feel if you were to say them and what does that translate into, um, you know, in the written page all the way up to the big motifs and what kinds of descriptions and patterns you're repeating over and over. So it's like, it's, it's ranging from these tiny choices, to these large ranging kind of pattern based and big aesthetic choices. So yeah, I think that that's so true. I was actually I, I jotted down um, before we started this, I, I think, uh, if you want a masterclass in voice, you have to look at picture books. I mean, I know, they're, we're talking fantasy novels and big doorstop things that we write, but picture books manage to capture a voice and a world in a very limited number of words, like um, the beginning of where the wild things are, Murray Sendak, the night Max wore his wolf suit and made mischief of one kind and another, his mother called him wild thing, and Max said, I'll eat you up. So he was sent to bed without eating anything. I love that because it's a single sentence, one sentence. And they managed to capture, he manages to capture the wildness of the entire story 
through combining it into a single sentence, so it, it has this feel of the punctuation acts like rocks in a stream with the other words tumbling over them while saying, I'll eat you up, it's all part of the same sentence. And I love that because it's painting an entire picture, a mood, the character, and the world in one line through how he uses punctuation. I think it's cool. <laughs> The thing I find, I, I know I'm enjoying someone's prose when I'm reading it, if I catch myself saying it aloud, like while I'm just reading to myself, if I sort of start speaking the words that I'm reading, it's like, oh, this is this is good language I've got right here, because I just sort of can't help but want to put it in my mouth, like you said, Rowena, like getting that mouthfeel is, that's when the language is, is sizzling for me. It's so exciting too when you when you get the sentence right. Like when you write a sentence and the music is perfect for it, and you just want to shout to everyone like, "I wrote a sentence!" and everyone else is like, "That's your job, sweetie." But I'm like, "No, no, that's what Twitter's for, though." I feel like half of writer Twitter is people doing that. Like, I wrote four consecutive words today. They were awesome. Y'all should hear about it. It feels so good. It's like the clicks of a puzzle. <laughs> But you can feel it. It's like the clicks of a, a puzzle pieces in a puzzle when it feels right. And you're like, that is what my story should be. Now I just have to write 300 more pages. <laughs> and go. Yeah. <laughs> but I do think about that all the time, of that sort of sense of how it does feel in your mouth. I mean, I can't. I can't separate like the actor part of me. I'm always thinking somebody's going to have to say this. And then I think about the, the Harrison Ford bit during Star Wars. It was like, you can write this shit, George, but you can't say it. And I always feel like you have to be able, at least for me, it needs to be able to flow off of the tongue in a way that makes sense. And if it doesn't do that for me, then then it's not working. I probably do it at least as much visual as I do auditory. I've <laughs> been on the phone with my, some of my audiobook narrators before who are all fantastic people, and they've been like, how do you pronounce this word? I'm like, I don't know. I wrote it down. <laughs> no clue. How would you like to say it? Um, I definitely do a lot on, on visual, though. I like the to play with the white space that a paragraph will leave, where you end the paragraph. And I know it'll be different when it's typeset, but somehow when I'm writing... I love playing with, with the silence almost as much as I love playing with the words. Oh, God, yes. Yeah. Like, I love doing the thing of just the impact of, like, a short sentence that's a whole paragraph. Yes. <laughs> yes. Or the back and forth dialogue and how you can control the speed of any reveal of, of anything. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> so we have our individual voice that is us and also is the story's kind of, like, core and then there's also the genre that we're writing in and the subgenre and all of that and the expectations that it might have that kind of impacts some of the choices that we make when we write, right? Like if we're writing epic fantasy, there's a certain expectation on length or, you know, things like that. To what degree, to what degree does that impact what you're writing versus to what degree did you choose to write that so that's what you're doing? Ooh, that's like chicken or egg. <laughs> <laughs> like did the story choose the genre or did... <laughs> Did you choose the genre for the story? I do feel like I know like when I've worked workshops or have read slush that I've seen stuff where it's clear people thought I'm writing fantasy here. So thus I have to go purple and <laughs> sometimes to its detriment because I think that's in and of itself its own craft of like being able to write these sort of weirdly lush verbose sentences that 
don't always really work if the person if it's clear the person is forcing it to be that way as opposed to it that being what the proper voice of the story needed to be like there's a flow to that that is hard to find but i think sometimes people force it in that direction because they think that's what fantasy is supposed to be yeah that's that's i think that's where people do get into trouble is when, when they're thinking about sort of the more of the expectations rather than um trying to find honestly what the story needs and how it needs to be told um i'll sometimes audition uh different voices or characters or whatever and try the scene like many different many many different ways <laughs> <laughs> and until i find the one that makes that nice little clicky sound in my head and makes me want to like run around the house going i've got it but yeah i think it needs to, I, I i think they're kind of joined you're, you're choosing what story you want to write and the voice that goes with the story, it has to come from that organically. And then again, when you start telling it in a particular kind of voice, it's going to inform what the story is and what you show of your world and what you what you build. Um, so they're kind of so linked, I don't even know how to intertwine which comes first. No, I agree. Um, last episode, we talked about just genre and how it, it impacts the world. And it's like, yeah, if, if you are writing grimdark it is going to take on a tone and then you're going to make stylistic choices and plot choices and world choices that are going to be very different from if you are writing like a light fantasy romance the, the details yeah. you pick are different everything that you choose at that point is different um the story can take place in the exact kind of same like beats or or plot kind of like moving through and you change a few pieces and all of a sudden you can write a completely different story. Yeah, that's always so fascinating that how different writers can take the same idea. Even I bet if you put two writers in the same room, gave them the same world, the same characters, the same plot point, it would still be two drastically different stories. Just because it gets filtered through your heart and your mind and it comes out your fingertips totally different than somebody else's heart and their mind. Just the perception, even, of, of what you perceive as being important within a yeah. story or within a world is just going to be a completely different starting point before you even get to the artistic part of it. Absolutely, absolutely. Though I do have to say, I always do, <laughs> in my epic fantasies, there's always one draft I have to go through where I eliminate some of my snark. <laughs> <Because, laughs> earlier draft, I'm way too flippant about everybody dying. <laughs> that version of the story is yeah is that <laughs> bonus material available somewhere the snark edit <laughs> yeah, no, that, that, that's gonna stay hidden <laughs> though that does remind me i used to do this playwriting exercise with uh, a local group here where once a year we do this thing where on friday afternoon we would get three ingredients that we had to put into a play and then have a 10 minute play by sunday afternoon and it always fascinated me how people would take those three things and always come up with such radical different ideas of ways to mix these three things together and like which one of the three they made like the spine of their play as opposed and the other two they just sort of sprinkled in and that that thing you were saying about you're going to get these radically different things just you know even if you tell people tell the same story for them to tell they're going to tell it their way and I, I love that so much of just the wildly different ideas people would come up with off those same off those same bases. It was like it was like Iron right. Chef, but for place. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's such a, a 
Okay, that writing exercise is actually not so different from how I've come up with some of my novels. <laughs> Sometimes I, I sit down, I open a Word document, I write at the top, things I think are awesome. And then I just make a list of stuff and I like <laughs> pluck out three and ram them together. <laughs> totally works. Gorgeous. That's perfect. <laughs> I think you can see that instinct in fan fiction too. Like the number of writers who will watch a single same scene in a TV show or a movie and then re-spin it in infinite ways. Some of them great, some of them not so great, but you know, it's it's a different tone or it's a different character's point of view. It is that different voice, but all stemming from that same initial kernel. And, and I think that's a, I know we have fanfic writers out there among our listeners. So I think that's a joyous thing about fan fiction is that ability to re-spin off a single moment with your own perspective and your own voice. Yeah, I think that's really cool too. And I, I mean, that's why I was so excited to come talk words with you guys because that those are the building blocks that we're all doing it with. Which words we choose at a very granular level determines what sort of dream we're painting for people. So it's not always about like, okay, what what is the socio-political, economic, whatever of your world, but which words, what kind of vowels are you using? Where, how many semicolons, how many M dashes are involved in your world building? I'm keeping them. You All can't the have them. You can't take them from me. She says to her copy editor. I will not she take your M dashes. I need those. I need them. These are my emotional support M dashes. I, I love M dashes. You can pry my descriptive comma splices from my cold dead hands. I will back you up on that. That's just rhetorical. That's just that's that's just Zugma. It's fine. Yes. It's fine. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I feel very strongly about commas. So when we think about like that intersection of crafting a world with words, are there some books that you can think of that to you, the voice, the prose and the world, like you just, you could not divorce them from each other. Mostly because we like to make our listeners TBRs much longer. So. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I, mean, I don't know if it's just me, but I've always found that whenever I'm on a panel and somebody asks, can you recommend a book that it's suddenly as if I've never read a book in yes. my entire life yes. and I can't think of anything, even if I was reading something great like an hour ago. So, so I wrote down two that came right to mind. Um, the All Systems Read, the, the Murderbot Diaries books by Martha Wells such a strong voice and the voice is everything in those books because you just fall in love with Murderbot. They're such a fantastic character and it's the story is entirely carried through the voice. And the other is pretty much any book by Guy Gabriel Kay. Uh, one of my favorites is Under Heaven and just the prose in that just paints the world in so many colors. Um, his sentences are like three times as long as mine. And he packs more description into a single sentence than I think I've ever seen any writer do. My go-to for, for, for this one is almost always going to be Watership Down because... <gasps> I love that! Because, like, so much is built of this, you know, of this rabbity world with the use of language and then the the sprinkling of their own words that... It's one of those books where you're like, does it does it need to have like its own like little vocabulary? But it's so it it add, it's one of the ones where it really adds a richness to it that that just works. So that when you reach the point about two thirds through, where where Bigwig just like it's a whole like invective at the at General Windward entirely in the Latin language. You're like, wait, I know exactly what that means. Ooh, that was nasty. <laughs> but like, 
But it's because it builds up to that point that it works. So that's that's one of the ones I love. I that. love Watership Down. I remember my English teacher in sixth grade showed the movie and I just sobbed through the entire class in front of everyone else. I think it was during that the, the Art Garfunkel song, Bright Eyes, and you know, the rabbits hopping through the yeah, it was just it it pretty much crushed me. Not as badly as Artax in Never Ending Story, which broke me for like years. So I think we all had PTSD from that. Like yeah. that's just Anyone of a certain age, you just... Yeah, I think it's a, it sparked a whole generation of fantasy writers that are like, don't kill the animal. Don't care about yes. the humans, but the wolf, <laughs> the horse, the whatever, it's gonna live. I'm gonna need assurance that the ponies are safe, thank you. Yeah, I got, actually, with my, my Queen's Arenthia books, I got more letters about keeping the wolf alive for the third one. Like, please, I don't care who else, but please keep the wolf alive for the third one. <laughs> I feel like I should have a disclaimer. Like, it's going to be okay, at least for the wolf. No promises <laughs> no, on anyone I mean, else. <laughs> yeah, we don't no. care about anyone else, but that would be, I don't know, one for me. Um, I'm amazed by the shift in voice in Naomi Novik's work oh, yeah. that when you read the Temerary books, they are so just imbued with that, you know, Regency era of sale novel. I mean, you know, nails it. And then you read spinning silver or uprooted and they have that fairy tale essence just kind of like just embedded in in the work and just that they're so different is it just amazes me and I love it um because reading uprooted was like reading a fairy tale a brand new fairy tale for grown-ups and I always seek that in my life because we need more fairy tales the other one that I think of is actually Alice in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass because it just nails weird and like dreamlike, but not like pleasant dreamlike, like the actual confusion of being in a dream so perfectly with the voice and, and the, just the rapport between the characters and their dialogue. It's just, it, I, I, I love that in terms of conveying the kind of mores and foundations of this world, which is, it makes no sense. So here you go. Surge in a silver platter, using language, it makes no sense. <laughs> Enjoy. <laughs> That's such a good choice. And so much of it is just about the playing with language in general. Yeah, I mean, the, the whole Jabberwocky, twas brillig and the slithy toves, did gyre and gimble through the wave. Oh, Mims- why do I know that all? Like, <laughs> oh, Mimsy, where the bar grows. <laughs> because if you ever learned it, it is permanently yeah, embedded. That and like 80s somewhere music somewhere in your brain pan. like taking up space in my brain that could possibly be used for computing something important. I think for, for me on, on a distinctive style I love, it's going to be one of my, my perennial answers, which is Terry Pratchett's Discworld novels. Um, particularly the way that his tone is, is so irreverent. It, it, it is light until it sucker punches you with some essential truth of humanity that just wallops you out of nowhere and then it goes back to being irreverent and funny and it's done with such a deft hand especially sort of you know that at the height of, of his career and when he was um because you know, the first few novels are, are, are bumpier when i when i'm talking about this i'm talking about sort of the the mid to late career ones and that i don't think you can mistake for for anybody else's yeah that's writing. very distinctive i love his tiffany aching books those are my favorites of his we free men and yes. all of the ones after 
also there are a lot of angles that we can get at for how like we actually do this um, when we're writing but one that I think of in terms of relating it to the world is like how does the texture of your world affect the texture of your words like the way your world is set up to to feel to make your reader feel to make your reader engage like how how do you how do you word when when you're thinking about that i know i think so much about like what words i am and am not allowed to use in in any given text in, in, in the world and perhaps to my detriment like i spent days just figuring out about the word marathon if it was appropriate or not and <laughs> and you know i've we've seen those conversations where somebody gives you pushback of like you don't need to think about that that doesn't matter and i'm like no that's that is the core of what you're doing is deciding the right words that show your world and describe your world and so i i i dwell on that so much of like is is this word just appropriate for the tone and for the world itself and for how we're describing things. I think I don't think too much about the etymology of the word. I remember being in a discussion once time about whether you're allowed to use the word mesmerized in the secondary world because it was named after Mesmer, who didn't exist in the secondary world. And I've decided since then that my works are simply a translation of whatever language is happening in the secondary world. Therefore, I can use whatever word feels right to me. Is the direction I've taken it. I think a lot more about um, what we were talking about before, of how the word feels in your mouth, of of the the rhythm of the words and how they shape it, and the length of the sentences and the flow, and how many commas and m dashes are involved. <laughs> <laughs> One of the places that I really think about mouth feel a lot is when I'm naming in world things. So when I'm naming nations, or what are the naming conventions in in this particular corner of my made-up world like that ends up being really important to me for like having sort of like a cohesive aesthetic of the language for a place so I know that that's one place I think about it a lot and definitely come up with some that are like not only how is it going to be said but how does it look on the page and yes how do you pronounce that well all readings are valid because reading is a creative act so <laughs> you can pronounce it however you like with, with that sort of thing I do have those moments where like either the pronunciation makes perfect sense in my head but when i look at the word itself i'm like that word just looks ugly and <laughs> i'm not gonna want like if i say that this is a city or a country and all that people are gonna be like no but like i i get that in, <laughs> i i get that instinctive feeling that if i put that as the name of a place that readers are gonna be nah nope i'm out gone <laughs> which is probably far too paranoid than what would actually happen but i i always have that i i guess i'll go with the word fear for this that with secondary world fantasy you're always one silly word away from losing your reader <laughs> fair though in some ways right one one misplaced x one misplaced apostrophe in the middle of a name and it's like nope I, I do out. try to check like, any of the made-up words or places. I'll run them through Google to make sure they don't mean something I really, really don't want them yes. to mean. <laughs> thinking about like the, the world affecting the word, I, I've been thinking about how Avon is a very crowded place. It is 
you know, the most densely populated city in its world. It's the largest city in its world. It is bustling. It is full. And I think my prose there is also full. Not just in some of the traditional ways of like, you know, giving the details of, of what the sights and scents and sounds are, but the way the characters think. They are always thinking on like multiple levels. They're, they're negotiating so many different things in their heads. And then in Iberia, it's a much more open place. It's not crowded. It's not dense. And the characters who are from there have a more expansive sort of tone in, in their chapters, even when they are dealing with fraught things and, and battles and stuff like that, my cadence changes, my pace of, of writing changes, and it's not as dense with words. And then when I put my Aventon characters in that landscape, it sort of feels uncomfortable for them because they're still trying to operate on like these Aventon levels in the wrong sort of landscape. And, and it's, I don't know how apparent it is to anyone outside my own head, but it's something I think about. Oh my God. So with, with the book that's coming up, which, dear listeners, is now titled An Unintended Voyage, which it didn't have a proper title until last week. So I'm happy to, to be able to finally announce it. But anyway, in the... <laughs> Poor nameless child. In that book, I have all these different characters from different cultures all interacting together. And I have my point of view character whose command over the language in where she is grows over the course of the book so the way just that things are expressed changes over the course of it and because we have people from other different parts of the world just again that's sort of like that cadence that that rhythm that music from each of them needed to be a little different in the way each of them spoke in in and that was that was sort of fun thing to play with in making that work and again it probably will only be that for me in my head and nobody else will will quite get that to the same level that i did but but it was a fun thing that was that was a big thing of what doing that work well dear readers now when reading marshall ryan Maresca's next work you know what to look for see if you can play spot the cadence with the languages well i think you both bring up a really good point that character is huge here right like which character is the tour guide in this world affects quite a bit of what they perceive, what they share, what eyes you're seeing it through, and that's going to loop right back around to the kind of language that we choose. And of course, there's always the questions of are you in first, are you in third, close third, distant third, that's all going to affect it too. But even just which characters you're following around affects the language that we end up conveying to the page. Yeah, I think that's... A- 100% true. I mean, you could you can have the same gorgeous glowing city in the sunlight and whose eyes you see that glorious sunlight through can change your whole perception of how that's described. I mean, whether it's the vampire that's about to burn up by seeing the glorious sunrise, it's going to have different word choices for how they describe this city than the one that's been locked in a closet and is coming out into the sun for the first time in seven years or whatever. I, I think I've mentioned this before, but I've fairly recently read A Memory Called Empire and the sequel, A Desolation Called Peace. And the way the central character in those books thinks about language, because she's operating in a language that is not her own. And she is so consciously aware of it 
because she has this sort of inferiority complex about the culture she comes from and this grand empire she's trying to operate in. And yet at the same time, she's like, but I don't, you know, is that okay? Am I like colonizing my own head when I do this? It is such a fascinating look at the way we conceptualize our own speech and our own language. And it's just fantastically rendered in, in those books. So those considerations are before you even hit the question of how do you render dialogue? I love dialogue. <laughs> That's one of my favorite things to write. I've definitely written entire scenes that are just dialogue and like had to go back and like put them somewhere, <laughs> make them <Yes>. do things. Because <laughs> I just get off on bantering and I'm like, okay, maybe we should, you know, rein this back a little. No, I'm with you. I do the same thing. <laughs> That's how I get to know my characters. Is yeah. yeah. I'm really not sure what they're doing yet. I'll just put two of them in a room and make them fight about something. I do exactly the same thing. Like, here, discuss. You both want something different. And by the way, there's a dragon going to eat you. Go! Does pineapple belong on pizza? And go! <laughs> My friend Kirk Lynn, who is primarily a playwright, has a novel called uh, Rules for Werewolves, which the entire book is in unattributed dialogue. That would make me very anxious. <laughs> But it works because each of the characters has such distinct and strong voice that, like, you always know who's talking, even when it's a scene where it's five different characters, because the voice is just that strong in how how they talk and what they're talking about. It's re I mean, it really is an impressive piece of work. That's awesome. I have not done that yet. <laughs> like, trying to plot, hmm, that sounds fun. <laughs> See, whereas I, I think I'm the opposite. I get nervous if there's, like, too many lines of dialogue without some kind of description. Even if it's just the stage business of what the characters are, are doing or how they're sitting on a couch. I'm like, I start to get, I, get, I start getting nervous. It's like, wait, wait, is that too many? <laughs> is this just becoming a white room? <laughs> two people sitting in the white room? Yeah, I, I, I get that. I get that so yeah. hard. Yes. <laughs> hey, I, I love dialogue as a reader, too. I find I, I totally skim read and I will read to the dialogue and then be like, oh, wait, somebody died. I better go back and read that paragraph. <laughs> no. Hard same. Miss the stabbing Hard paragraph. Hard same. Whoops. I remember. <laughs> I, I don't remember which book this was, but I remember I was reading some book where there's like dialogue, 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 and I was into the dialogue. And then there was a paragraph that I just kind of like skimmed the paragraph and dialogue, dialogue, dialogue. And then I got really confused about what was going on. And then I went back to the paragraph. It turns out like three weeks passes in that paragraph. And I was like, <laughs> oh, this is in one conversation. Okay, now that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. The advantage of skim reading is every time you reread, it's like a new book. You're seeing different yeah. parts. So. I think it is fun how dialogue is like this little microcosm of all the tools that you can use to change voice and to convey things differently and and to play with that even within a book that has to be you know like sort of cohesive you can't be too like scattered in all the different voices that you might want to use you have to have that centralized but in dialogue you get to play a little bit more and and convey in some ways different elements of your world that you might not get to convey in the depth that you might want to when you are, you know, in close third or in first and dialogue lets you bring in different people who speak differently or see things that are different or care about things that are different and can convey that. Um, I feel like dialogue can convey that even better than a paragraph of description sometimes. Yeah, that's true. Um, I, and I love the act of trying to make dialogue 
realistic, whereas it can't be. Like, it, it just, if you <laughs> went to a cafe and typed down everything everybody said, it would make no sense, and there'd be so many ums and likes and goodness knows what, and so many non sequiturs, you'd be like, is there a story here, or are you just rambling? So <laughs> the dialogue really can't be too realistic, yet you're trying to create this illusion of an actual conversation. I think that's so fun. I love tossing in the non sequitur and the banter. I just love banter. I love snark. I love humor. I'm deeply suspicious of novels that don't include some humor in it. <laughs> Though that reminds me of the difference between the first time I read Mammoth and then saw Mammoth performed. Because if you've read a Mammoth play, it does have that like, what is this madness of just words? Because you know the thing with like. The phone, yes, the phone, okay, and yes, indeed, of course. Like, that's how it's written out, and just like, what is this garbage? But then when you see somebody (laughs) perform it, you're like, oh, that's how people talk. That makes sense now. It it is a thing where it just seems so weird written down the way it is. Yeah, because you're not getting the pacing when when people talk. You're not getting when they pause over certain words or when they cut themselves off, and you're not getting the, the back and forth, so you have to have to mimic that and get the illusion uh, of real people talking and that these are real people. And I love that. I, I always, I find, I, I think Rowena, you said this, I, I, I find my characters through the dialogue, through getting them to talk to each other. That's when they come to life for me is, is when they, when you stick them in a the room and they see what they say. I also love playing that game with them where, where you see how they respond to different other characters and like how they code switch between a private conversation and a public conversation or talking to someone they're familiar with versus someone that is a stranger to them. And are they someone who who does have the same sort of register, who is unflustered by those changes, or do they consciously change their tone based on who they're talking to? Because we, we all do that. We don't talk the same way to everyone in our lives, but we still have the same voice and we still have some of the same verbal ticks and so carrying that over for a character no matter who they're talking to while still shaping it differently for each situation is is a fun game for me I, I enjoy playing that game yeah I was just thinking about how um you know speaking is personal but it's also cultural and how much is conveyed about a culture and its norms and its expectations just with how people speak to each other yeah um and what is normal and acceptable and what would be pushing the envelope um, there's a lot of play there. Yeah, when I was writing my, my Renthea books and Building the World, I decided that I wanted men and women to be equal in this world. So one of the things that I did with the, the speech habits as the women is I, I stripped out the apologies because women in a patriarchal culture tend to apologize for everything, uh, for taking up space, for speaking, for, for anything. You bring in with, oh, I'm so sorry, but um, I stripped those away for the world. Interesting, a lot of re- reviewers, <laughs> the result of this, thinks it's a matriarchal society, and it is not. They are equal. But that's another issue. <laughs> Why am I not surprised? But it really does. Yeah, but it really, the, the world building can influences how you get your characters to talk to each other and, and what they choose to say, what they choose to remember, what they choose to reveal about the past of this world. There's so much that you can say through, you know when they're looking down this road and talking about where they're going to go, are they remembering the past history of what battle was fought there or what myth was set there? Like, oh, we're going to this hill of whatever where whomever fought the Minotaur, you know, whatever they're fighting. Um, (laughs) And you're going to learn about the world. You're going to learn about what that character thinks is important and you're going to forward the plot. And I love 
I love sentences that can do all of those things at once. <laughs> so if we think about plot and pacing, like how, how, do you, how do you make words that affect how a plot unfolds, how, how it feels? Because pace is so much about the feel of something, right? It's not, it's not just the bullet points of what is the main, you know, stops through your story, but also how, how the reader feels as they are moving through your story. Like, how does, how does that get to come and play, especially when you think about the, the world that it's unfolding in? I think it's a lot through, you can do a ton with just sheer sentence length and paragraph length. Because you, you're controlling the camera speed, really, of how quickly you go past the scenery, how quickly you go past the scene. You can slow down a fight scene so that you're seeing every motion in it. Or you can get this, this whirling feeling of things happening so fast, and you can do it with like lots of little short sentences and strong verbs and minimal adjectives and move the pace quickly through a scene. Um, you can also add breath. You frequently need like those those spots of breathing in a scenes are so important for the the reader to like be like okay wait what happened who's still alive what's going on <laughs> did anyone turn into a skunk I don't know we got to find out all right that sort of moment where you where you stop take stock of where you are before you pivot to something new um, the weight of how many sentences you devote to those moments can carry it forward. Definitely. And I love the play in that on like sentence length, because that is such a strong tool in the toolbox of like, what are you going to punch in on? What are you going to allow the reader to kind of keep rolling along with you for a while? And then when you're going to stop them. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, playing with sentence length and punctuation is such a fun thing to do with that. Um, and you can do it even just in conveying world building. You know, you've got the plot part of, of your sentence length and variation, but even in like world building, you can give someone something surprising on the same clap of a short sentence that you kind of do when you are, you know, using that short sentence for a, and then I got punched in the face. Um, <laughs> kind of, you know, you can, you can use some of those tools in various ways. Yeah, chapter endings too. The sentence you decide to end your chapter on automatically gets this big giant spotlight on it. So it's kind of worth more than a sentence in the middle of the chapter. So if you want to really draw your attention to a bit of action or a bit of world building or character development, the end of a chapter carries a lot of weight and that's a good spot to put it. I love chapter endings. We, we, we love all of our sentences equally. Yes. Uh, You're, all You're all very important. <laughs> but I do think so much about those last, those last sentences of a chapter and how they're going to connect to the next sentence of the chapter or just the next sentence of the scene and so much about sentence length and paragraph length and scene length. I am weirdly obsessive about like using the word counts per scene features on Scrivener <laughs> and making and like and using that just as a tool of understanding the pacing of the thing of like, OK, like this chapter is good. This chapter is good. This chapter is going to feel long just based on just based on the numbers. And then I go through there and be like, is, you know, is that going to be is that going to be a problem? Or does it even though it's this many words long, is it going to read faster? Because of like, I think about I think about that granular detail of how it's going to, to read based on that. I love that. I love that. I discovered after writing several books that my chapter length is based on how long I can write before I get hungry again. It's about 10 pages, then I need a snack. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. 
suddenly all the descriptions are about food. Uh, and you know, I can't write a food time, scene without going to get something time, to eat. I don't know about you guys. <laughs> I mean, I write way too many food scenes and they're far too lush. And then I have to like go make what I just talked about. Yeah, it is impossible to read the Redwall books without eating something. Oh my God. Like, the I Redwall dare books anyone are just... to read those banquet scenes. Oh my goodness. They're like the best banquet scenes in literature. They're pretty crazy. And, and you're like, ooh, would acorn bread be good? I should try that. <laughs> right? <laughs> Start gathering acorns now. Why are these mice so proficient cooks? I don't understand. <laughs> So one place that I know that I make different choices um, in my language is when I'm thinking about, am I conveying like the tactile physical world or am I conveying like the thought world? And I think that we can, I assume we all agree from a world building perspective, those two things are both important, that the physical world surrounding a character is important and the world that lives inside their head that is informed by all of their, you know, culture and religious and social and economic background is also important. Like. Do you find yourself writing those in different ways or using different tools to write the tactile and physical versus the thought world? That is such an interesting question. I tend to write really, really, really close third person to the point where I'll start off and have the direct thoughts in italics, like any proper writer, and saying the name thought. <laughs> and then once I've established that we're seeing the world through that character's eyes, I'll start slipping those thoughts into the description itself so that by the time you're meshed in the story, they're, they're almost one and the same. I'm curious how you guys do it, though. I do a lot. I do... Um... So the Unreal Kingdom books were first person, and what I'm writing right now is is um, two point of view, close third. And I'm finding that a lot of what I'm doing right now is what does this character notice? Hmm. So it's like a lot of the tactile physical world descriptions are coming to you through the lens of what does this character notice as they walk around them. So um, my like farmer is noticing things about like, this is how the plants are growing and the sky looks like this today so I can expect rain and my like city mouse is very interested in you know how people are interacting with each other and kind of what social connections are happening around her and she's like keeping tabs on all of those things um so that's kind of been a, f a fun way to play with with language for me on this one is having more than one person in the story who's giving you that lens and letting you see the world through their perspective. I love that. That's really fascinating because it is true that the world, what you see of the world really depends on the character. If it's a character that takes a whole bunch of stuff for granted, they're not even going to see it. So, I mean, that I, I feel like that's a, a lot of books that have a new, are revolve around a new character coming in it's so that you can see more of the world because they're going to notice it. Whereas someone that's been there for 15 years would be like, oh yeah, that's just the talking dragon. Don't worry about it. <laughs> His name is Steve. Yeah. <laughs> oh, now I totally want to write about a dragon named Steve. <laughs> for me, when it comes to the, the tactile world and the thought world, I think my thought and particularly my emotion world has more natural flow for me. I find that sort of easier to click into especially for certain characters I then get 
longer trains of thought. There are certain chained rhetorical, rhetorical devices that I will use that sort of flow in and out of each other. Whereas when I'm thinking about the tactile world, I am thinking about dressing a set and I am thinking about it in those very deliberate ways. And, and I am much more precise in how I place those descriptions than I am when I'm sort of writing a character's interior world. It's, it's a difference in precision for me, I think. Yeah. Interesting. Again, to go, to go back to like the way my theater brain works, like that interior stuff, like that's, that's the actor's work of like, what, what am I doing? What am I trying to convey? Whereas the set dressing that like, no, I just get Marco to make the set look pretty. And uh, then I don't need to, that. That's not my job. <laughs> <laughs> that was my job. I can't. I, <laughs> you did theater where you actually had crews. My, my theaters never had crews. So it's like, okay, I can have whatever emotions I want. But if I need that plate, I need to place that plate or that plate ain't going to be there. So <laughs> it's like either I put the plate where it's supposed to be or it doesn't I get so much have crews as I had a guy named and Marco. I only have plates that I can afford. <laughs> I do think the whole revision process for me is about choosing, narrowing in on which details are going to bring the world to life in the best way. Like, I'll know like lots of details about this world and whatever. I could see lots of things, but which is the one that's going to paint the broadest scene for people? Which, which is the, like, there's some Stephen King quote that I'm going to mangle, but it's about like an overturned bicycle in an empty street can stand for everything. Um, that's not exactly what he said, but it was something about a bicycle, maybe a tricycle. I don't know. Something was upside down in the street and it stood for a lot. But that's how I feel about details in revisions is when you choose the right one, it shows so much more than just that one detail. Yeah. I, I think a lot about how can I, with a minimal number of words, evoke something that'll get the reader to fill in the rest of the negative space based on yeah. that word. Yeah, I think that's so true. I love the negative space. The things you don't say can sometimes be just as important as the things that you do. Like if you can, just by describing one things, let all sorts of other stuff be implied with that. And then right. you don't have to like spend all that time because people already build the rest of that close to what you're trying to sell them in with just that little bit. That's one of the cool things about writing in the fantasy genre is that a lot of the readers that you're writing for, um, at least in the, the, the books that I write for, for adults and for older readers, they have a whole set of assumptions that they're coming through. Everybody's got all these reader expectations. Everyone's read Tolkien. Everybody's like familiar with what a dragon is supposed to be like and that they're supposed to have a horde and whatever. And then you can twist on that. They're, they're coming with a whole set of expectations of what your world is going to be like based on the details that you've presented. And so you can jump off that and either fulfill that expectation or subvert it. And that's so much fun. So I am curious, after we brought up revision and the paring down, for you, like, when you're thinking about getting world building into your story, how does that process look like? And, and to what degree is it a pre-writing versus during writing versus revision process? I think we've talked, Cass and Marshall and I have talked about this before, but I'm curious about I know it, how that works for you. I do a certain amount of pre-writing um, where I try to get, okay, how I do it is I make a single decision, like there are bloodthirsty nature spirits or monster racing is going to happen in this world. 
And then I just take that one decision and start asking it questions. If this were true, what else would have to be true? Okay, if that were true, what else would have to be true? And just fall, chase down all the little consequences to all the different layers of society and the world and the geography and the blah, 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 blah. Um, and then I, I try to come up with sort of a list of the rules of the world and try to distill it into as few as possible so that it will it's straightforward in my head. And then I print it out and I stick it next to me and then I ignore it like a lot. Um, do a similar thing with outlines for the plot. Um, I just start writing and I try to write like the most awesome thing I can think of. And if it fits, yay. And if it doesn't, I go back and change what the world is. <laughs> so it kind of evolves as I, I go along. Um, and then I try to go through and do passes where I keep the awesome stuff, get rid of the boring stuff and then make it as consistent as possible so that if I'm using something on page 300, I have mentioned it on page two, I have hinted at it on page 25, I have seen it in action, I have seen it used, and then we get to page 300. Um, but it definitely is an evolving thing for me. All of world building is. I, I don't know everything. I don't know what the plumbing is like necessarily, um, I, but I will by the time I finish like draft 30. <laughs> So. I really love that your overarching writing philosophy appears to be the rule of awesome. It is. <laughs> just, <that> is. <laughs> just always the rule of awesome. Yes. And I think of it in all capital letters too, the rule of awesome. <laughs> that, if you ever do like a writing advice book, that should be the title. Just. <laughs> That's what I, I think. Because I think that our job as writers is like, okay, there's this level of awesome in the world. Like the world is about this awesome. And our job is to raise the level by adding something new. Um, so I try to approach every scene, every character by asking myself, is this the most awesome thing that could happen next? And I just write the whole book that way. That's, that's really all I do. <laughs> it works. Cause I, I, I always believe in, in writing from a place of joy, you know, even, even if I'm killing off like half my characters, um, but <laughs> I, I, am not one of those writers that, that, and I completely respect writers that, that write from a place of angst or from anger, but I write to make myself happy. I, I, I enjoy writing. I enjoy stringing sentences together and creating something that didn't exist before and making a world and flying on a dragon and turning into a unicorn or whatever it is I'm, I'm doing in the story. I love it. So the rule of awesome works for me. It gets me from the beginning to the end. And then I go back and make it all make sense. <laughs> That's what revisions are for, is making it make sense. Exactly. <laughs> I kind of I, I think a lot of writing is, is trusting yourself, trusting your instinct. I mean, because everybody out there has absorbed so many stories, just through books you've read, movies, TV, whatever. You've evolved, absorbed so many stories that you have an instinctive feel for what works for you. So for me, a lot of writing is getting that little conscious brain that's going, that's not right, that's not right, don't write that, um, to shut up and let me get work done. <laughs> So I usually write to music because that part of my brain seems to like to listen to music and it goes off and it's singing along and I can get stuff done. That is so much my tactic too. I will put on headphones and sometimes just put one song on repeat and it it just <laughs> makes <laughs> that voice get confused. I wrote my next uh, middle grade book, which is about a talking squirrel and uh, she's a resident of the shelter for rejected familiars. And I wrote it all listening to sea shanties, specifically the Wellerman, like on repeat. <laughs> <laughs> for like the whole book <laughs> you would never guess there's no like sea shanty in the book whatsoever but for some reason the rhythm was super helpful 
Well, I mean, they're working songs, right? Right? So yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I wrote... Any um, kinds of work. <laughs> Deep, Deepest Blue, my one with Sea Monsters, I listened to a lot of Wonder Woman. Like, a lot of the Wonder Woman soundtrack. <laughs> but I love, I love that question, too, of, like, so why am I writing? What kind of word do I want to make? And that that can then, like, flip right back around and inform. So what kind of a story am I going to write? Mm-hmm. You know, so what kind of a world am I going to build? What kind of words do I want to be using can inform those bigger picture questions? I want to write something that sounds like a fairy tale because I want to write that right now. So I'm not going to write a, you know, military fantasy because that's not fulfilling the desire that I have to, like, write to my bliss on on a word level. Right. Yeah, I mean, sometimes you just... But maybe next time I will. I don't know. <laughs> sometimes you just need to tell certain kinds of stories, like, just for you at that particular time. Just like sometimes when you're choosing what to read, there might be three books that are totally different and you love them all, but you're just in the mood for that popcorn one, or you're in the mood for that one that's going to make you cry, or you're in the mood for the one that's exciting, that's going to take you out of whatever you're doing. Um and I think it's the same way with writing. I really firmly believe in the, the write what you love as, as what should guide you. Not that you need to love it like every single day because there's always those days when you're like, I'm doomed. Um, <laughs> but, but in general, there should be that core of, I love this. This is what I would want to read. This makes me happy. That's always the goal. And absolutely. Writing, writing that thing that doesn't exist yet that you want to read. Yeah, or that world you want to go to. That's one of the reasons why I adore writing epic fantasy so much is like, I'm not particularly like brave in my normal life. Like I have zero survival skills. I'm like the friend that if it's a zombie apocalypse, you'd be like, go over there, Sarah. I'm going to run away while they eat you. Um, but <laughs> in these fictional worlds, you get to be the hero. You get to go to these places there. I would like last five minutes before I would die under normal circumstances. But you get to go there, and that's fun. I think people sometimes don't always talk about how fun writing can be. And it isn't always. It is hard work building worlds, but you get to build worlds. I mean, how awesome is that? We get to create worlds like these little, you know, wizards calling these spheres into being. (laughs) If whoever's ever listening to this, if you haven't tried world building and... I don't know why you're listening to this if you haven't tried world building, but if you haven't tried world building, please do so. It is <laughs> super fun. And on that note, I think that I might ask our guest to give us a souvenir. Um, so as our listeners know, we have kind of built a world um, on air. We haven't gone back to visit in a while. We need to go back and visit it again soon. We really do. I think it's lonely. Um, <laughs> do. But we ask we our do. guests yeah. to give us a little souvenir, a little bit of trivia, a little piece of something that we can slide somewhere in this big world that we are building. So, what have you got for us? What have you got in this world so far? So many things. So all kinds <laughs> of things. Yeah. Yes. All sorts can of things. Everyone uh, gets a talking animal sidekick. There needs to be talking animal sidekicks somewhere in the world. I, I think so, because I desperately want a talking animal sidekick. <laughs> um, I was having th- so I started writing when I was 10 years old, and I still have the very first story that I ever wrote, and I dug it out not that long ago, <laughs> and <laughs> discovered that it had 28 protagonists, and each of them had their own talking animal sidekick, because that was what I deemed to be important in the story. <laughs> 
and I still I fully agree. Kind of, yeah, yeah. I, I, maybe I don't have twenty-eight protagonists anymore, but talking animal sidekicks are still a pretty big thing for me. <laughs> Love it. Well, especially since in in our our world that we built, each area has its own form of magic. Like the magic is kind of geographical, and mm. so there could certainly be a corner where the animals can communicate. Excellent. With humans and perhaps form sidekick-like bonds. Maybe it's that the humans are the sidekicks to the talking animals. I don't know. I don't know how they see it. I like that a lot. <laughs> like yeah, that. that's pretty fun. Like that. <laughs> and this is my pet human. <laughs> <laughs> that would could be hilarious, actually. You could. We could have. Humans. We could have a culture that, like. For that human culture, the biggest honor is for an animal to choose you to be its companion. Yes. Ooh, okay, I totally, <laughs> I love totally love that. And the animals would build little, like, play areas for their humans so that, you know, <laughs> they could run around and, like, oh, my human likes to nap. I'll put them in bed in the sunlight. <laughs> what kind of snacks does your human like? <laughs> my human likes peanut butter. <laughs> I really hope they, they talk about the humans the way we talk about our pets. Like, oh, yeah, that's George. We found him in a trash can. <laughs> but we love him. <laughs> He's an accountant. I know it's sort of a weird breed to keep, but. That, 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 okay, I love it. That's fabulous. <laughs> well, this has been delightful. Thank you so much for being on. Oh, thank you for having me. This is, this is great. It's so great talking to you guys and about my favorite topic, world building. <laughs> Hi you! Thanks for listening to this episode of World Building for Masochists and letting us help you overcomplicate your writing life. Our next episode will go up on August 18th, where fantasy author and mortician Amanda Downham is joining us to tell us everything we ever wanted to know about dead bodies. We really hope you liked this episode. If you did, please do take a minute to tell a friend, shout about us on the internet, or leave a review on iTunes. If you've got questions or just want to tell us how cute we are, there's a number of ways to contact us. We're on Twitter as at WorldBuildCast, and our email is WorldBuildCast at gmail.com. We also have a Discord chat room linked in the About the Show page of our website if you want to come and chat with us and other fans of the podcast. We'd love for you to share the worlds you're making and help us all build until it hurts.